Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We are honored that you have taken time to join us. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Um, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who listen to the program this afternoon. And we don't want it to be just you that have tuned in. We want it to be your family members, your friends, your coworkers. So go ahead and send them a WhatsApp Give them a call, pass them a note, uh, walk next door, knock on your neighbor's door, encourage them to tune into That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua. We will be live for the next 90 minutes here. And if you are joining this program on Saturday during the rebroadcast, thank you for listening. And you can still send in your questions and we will answer them next week, Lord willing, as we start the next episode. Maybe it is a question that you have wondered about the answer to for many years. Maybe it's something that just came to you tonight. Maybe it's something that someone asked you and it really has you digging deep and trying to consider what does the Bible really say about that topic? Does the Bible contradict itself? We would be glad to hear your question and answer it here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Now, before we jump back into our topic that we started last week, and that was the topic of yoga, we have a question that is a carryover from last week, and Pastor wants to expound on it a little bit more. This one comes from Europe. And thank you to the individual who sent it in. And the question is, in the book of Job, is the being, which is called Ha Satan or H-A Satan, is it really the devil or is it a different being? What does the Hebrew grammar indicate by putting H-A in front of the word compared to the word Satan in the book of Genesis? Pastor, what are your thoughts? Well, I check up the uh, reference in the book of Job. And I discovered that in the book of Job, the word um, for Satan is used 14 times. Uh, the particular word for that is in the strongest number 7854. It's actually used 18 times in the Old Testament. Um, it is also found in Psalm 109, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. The word is Satan, uh, and it really means opponent. And uh, the Hebrew word um, comes from a word, Satan, which the root meaning means to attack, or it means to accuse, or it means adversary. Now, this is the same word that when the Greek translation of the Old Testament was translated into Greek, uh, the word that was used for that is the New Testament word, Satanus. 
And that particular word, Satanus, is used 35 times in the New Testament. It's used three times by Matthew, five times by Mark, eight by Luke, ten by Paul, and nine times by John. So really, in truth and fact, it's referring to the same being. Uh, it's just that the difference is between the Hebrew word and the Greek word, but the Greek word that was used to translate the Hebrew word in, in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the same word that we find in the New Testament. So he's referring to the same individual, same uh, being and same creature. So there's no distinction between Satan as mentioned in the book of Job or the book of uh, Chronicles or the book of Psalm or the book of Zechariah with the one that is mentioned in the New Testament. It's the same being, just that the one word is Satan, the other word is Satanus, basically. So the words are used interchangeably. So there's no difference. Thank you for that question that was sent in last week. If you have a question, you can send it via WhatsApp or text message to one two six eight. 7821454 or you can call and be put live on the air 1268 4627420 doesn't matter why you're listening why you're at home whether it's because of the covid uh, protocols whether it is because you are stuck at home uh, because of covid quarantine or Maybe you are doing your laundry, whatever the case may be. We are glad that you are listening to That's Truth. Last week, we began a topic which got a lot of interaction, and we are thankful for your interaction, and thank you in advance for interacting with us tonight. And that topic was the topic of yoga. Pastor, why are we discussing the topic of yoga? I thought this was an exercise thing. No, I think the the reason why we're doing it, quite frankly, is that a lot of people in the West who are engaged in yoga activity really don't understand the spiritual base behind it, and that it's really an occult movement. I don't think people understand that it's really fundamental to Hinduism. In other words, you can't have any form of Hinduism without yoga because that's the means by which your mind is transformed to a higher level of consciousness so that you can merge with Brahma, who is the Hindu impersonal god that uh, pretty much permeates the entire universe. So I think people in the West, because they don't understand the history of it, and I think sometimes even the exercises, like the breathing exercises and the postures, they don't understand why they're doing that, and sometimes they're given a mantra that they have to repeat in, in the whole process. And of course, the whole day is to release what is called the Kangalini force at the end of the spine, which is supposed to be a, a coiled serpent, about three inches at, at the base of the spine. And you're supposed to use the breathing exercises to release that Kangalini power. I don't think people are aware of, of uh, the spiritual ramifications of that. And you can be involved in a cult. Uh, activity without even uh, being aware of it. I mentioned uh, last week that when this thing came to the West, they could not have pushed it as a spiritual exercise because the people in the West generally were Christian in mind and Christian in understanding, uh, and they knew that Hinduism believed in pantheism, that God is in everything. So they had to repackage it. And I mentioned before what they did, they, they airbrushed the spiritual part of it and emphasize only the physical part of it that you would improve in your health and improve in your, your, your body tone, your body, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, people in the West are very health conscious and about exercises. So that's how it was sold to the West. But people haven't really understood what this whole thing is all about. Yoga is designed to cause you to come to a higher level of consciousness so that you merge with Brahma, which is the Hindu God. That is the goal of yoga. 
You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua. The name of the program is That's Truth. Now, some of the things you discussed last week on the program were the founding of it or the, the origins of it. But you said something tonight that really stuck out at me. And that was, you can't have any form of Hinduism without yoga. Without yoga. Yeah, every every form of, of uh, Hinduism has some form. Because yoga is really the core behind how you mesh with this um, supposed impersonal God that permeates the whole universe. And the whole idea is you, you get your mind to come to a higher level so that you are no longer conscious who you are and you merge, you lose your complete personality and identity. And, and that is the whole goal of, of uh, Hinduism. And yoga helped you to achieve that. That's why you have the breathing and you have the meditation, basically and the concentration and stuff like that. So would you agree with the statement that it was not just incidental or coincidental that yoga became uh, began to be pushed in the West? There was, I don't know if I'd say spirits behind it, but there was uh, ulterior motives. Of course. I mean, any Hindu who's honest would, would tell you, and as a matter of fact, I think we'll give you some quotes of people who were, what do you call, uh, people who, who uh, pushed this, this, this whole thing. Uh, the whole idea is, as I said, everything about um, yoga is to mesh with Brahma. That's the whole purpose of it. The thing with the in the West, though, is that w- we... Uh, I, I don't know why we're not discerning. Uh, I think because we have pretty much abandoned Christianity. We're looking for something to fill the void. And that's where the East came in with all their um, Hinduism and all the Buddhism, et cetera, et cetera, in the track, because people are looking for something to fill the void that has been left as a result of the abandonment of Christianity. And and uh, that's where these religions have come in now to fill in this whole thing. And don't forget people like the Beatles uh, are, who helped introduce all of this, and they were at one time the most popular band, et cetera, et cetera. And don't forget, too, people like, um, well... I don't value her very much, but Madonna mm-hmm. and Sting, that, that group, they're part of this whole yoga thing as well. So, and today, celebrities are used to market products. So when you have people like Madonna and Sting um, and others as well who are promoting this and, and who are involved in it, uh, you can see it becomes a marketing marketing. It's like selling, uh, selling shoes. You use Michael Jordan. I mean, he's no longer a star. But still, his shoes are the most expensive shoes you can get because of the association with him. And p- marketing is, is just one of those key things uh, that, to, to get the thing, uh, to sell it off on the public, basically. Pastor, last week you spent some time talking about how does yoga propose to help man. Can you give us a brief summary of that and maybe some of the other things yeah. as we well, lead in, up? In, in essence, uh, we pointed out that the whole problem with man is not sin. As far as yoga is concerned, the whole problem with man is man's ignorance, and he's too much tied to this material world. So he has to find release from this material world, and the way to do that is he has to learn to control his body and then control his mind, and through meditation and through breathing exercises, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, he comes to a level of consciousness that he loses his basic identity. He's no longer sensitive that what he's touching is something that is really material. And uh, as he chants and he keeps focused on one thing, uh, he goes to the experiment where he completely merges with the universe, uh, this universal power. Uh, that's the whole game of it, so that he's now free from all the material concerns and all the 
the confinement by the material world. Remember also that as you get deeper into this whole stuff, you get into contact with gods who tell you and give you information and tell you what to do. So it, it is. Do you think those are evil spirits? Of course, these are evil spirits. There's no doubt about that. And this is where um, what I mentioned last week, that whether it be Hinduism or whether it be some kind of other kind of cult practice or even the use of psychedelic drugs and marijuana and uh, cocaine and, and that kind of stuff, I have no doubt in my mind that when people lose control of their mind, they talk about going to higher consciousness, I believe they open a door in their lives for demonic powers to begin to control them. And uh, I, I have no question about that, no doubt about that. That's why the Bible puts so much emphasis on having your mind and controlling your mind as opposed to having an empty mind. The Bible never encourages you to have an empty mind, but that's basically what it is. And then you're supposed to surrender to whatever force is there. I mean, you've got to willfully surrender. to Think about that for just a moment. So your will is now completely opening the door of your mind and saying, okay, take control of me, possess me, do whatever it is. That's exactly what happened in all of these movements. And I think we're in real serious trouble even in the church because people in the church get involved in, in yoga as well. And that is where we need to discuss it because people think it's an innocent practice but it's far more serious than uh, I think a lot of Christians are prepared to look at. Pastor, for the listener, not to run down a bunch of rabbit trails, but for the listener that is listening and just heard you describe just turning your mind over to uh, to other forces, for the listener that says, Pastor, whether it be through drugs or whether it be through meditation or whatever, I'm involved in that. Is there hope for me? There is hope, but again, they have to come out of this whole thing, and you have to do what is called a prayer renunciation. I think I mentioned before that uh, in the, in the uh, first century world, when people were coming out of paganism, coming into the church, a lot of people, the whole ancient world was a pagan world. People worshipped false gods and were involved. And remember Paul talks about behind these idols are demons. And that's why when a man came to baptism, he had to pray a prayer of renunciation. I renounce my association with, with whatever it was, and I call upon Jesus. What it, that was a standard procedure before people could be baptized. They had to renounce what they were involved in. And of course, they had to get rid of all the paraphernalia that they involved in, in whatever occult uh, thing they're involved in. They had to either burn it, destroy it, whatever it is, and then turn to Christ and ask for forgiveness and pardon. But other than that, um, I don't know how else a person is going to get himself out of this kind of mess. Should we be taking into our 2021 churches that practice of a prayer of renunciation before we baptize in I think it depends on if, a, if you know a person coming of a cult background. For example, um, Witchcraft is fairly common in Antigua. You may not believe that, but it is, right? Um, I think if a person has been involved in witchcraft and people knew that, uh, I think that when that person that person say they got saved and they're coming to, to be baptized, I think it would be right and proper for ask them to publicly renounce this thing, uh, etc. But they're not going to be delivered from the occult influence without praying a prayer of renunciation. It doesn't happen that way without a prayer of renunciation. Pastor, what exactly are the chakras, if you can give us a summary of that? I uh, mentioned last week that there are seven sh chakras, and chakras are supposed to be um, psychic energy centers that are located at critical points around the nervous system of, of uh, all human beings. Uh, I mentioned there's seven of them, and I mentioned the fact that some are located in the base of the spine, 
Um, I mentioned that one. I mentioned one that's located in the region of genitals. One that's supposed to be in the area of the navel, and we talk about one in the area of the larynx, then one in the area of the, the heart, and the other one in the area between the eyes, the third eye, and then the other one at the top of the head, quite frankly. They've got sophisticated names, and um, I mean, uh, Indian names for these things, but I haven't used the, 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 the names, I just use the location. But each one of these centers is supposed to be a psychic center that has some energy that needs to be released. And uh, the whole idea is that by releasing the Kangalini force from the spine, which is a coiled serpent, uh, you get these different, uh, this movement of this energy travels up this, these, these uh, chakras and releases this energy and releases this energy and releases this energy until finally you come to the point where you reach enlightenment. So the chakras are just basic um, psychic energy centers that need to be released uh, through meditation and through breathing techniques and through concentration. And last week you finished up with talking about the eight limbs yeah. of yoga. Yeah, the eight limbs have to be the, the way in which you get to release this energy in these chakras, quite frankly. Um, and we talked about the, the first limb was the moral restraint. You have to learn how to uh, restrain yourself. And I mentioned self-control, benevolence, truthfulness, uh, even exchange and uh, detachment from things. So you have to go through this. This is almost like a moral um, control of yourself, quite frankly. So the first thing you have to focus on, you discipline yourself to get control of these areas of control. Secondly, you've got the second limb, which is has to do with um, uh, getting to know yourself more deeply and to relate to other people. I mentioned five of those. One is the matter of surrender. Uh, one is cleanliness, cleaning yourself, self-study, educate yourself, contentment, um, learn to appreciate and have gratitude, and then self-discipline, uh, learn to face your problems when you're running. So it's a, as I mentioned before, it's a moral uh, philosophy as well. It involves moral elements, etc. And then the third one I mentioned had to do with postures, yoga postures called asana. These are the physical postures that help the body prepare for deep meditation. So you see, even the postures you're doing and the exercise is actually gearing you to know how to meditate. So that's involved. And then the other, four, the fourth one was um, what you call breathing control. And this has to do by regulating these um, life forces of energy within you, you do that by learning to control your breathing. As you as you breathe, these life forces uh, are released, and um, these this uh, is absorbed into the body, etc. <clears throat> Pastor, we have a call from Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead quickly with your question, please. Hi, uh, Mr. Codrington. Hi, Mr. Codrington. How are you doing? Good man. Um, I have a question to ask. Uh, you remember me when we have the baby in the stable? Yes. Baby Jesus in the stable? Yeah. Is that is a part of replacement for the animal and them from this in, in what when people have this thing before time if they are, that means that Jesus Christ is get born in this stable because people just have animal before time and they have to take them to the um, altar for their sins. Yeah. So we're hearing a lot of background noise, but if so, I'm understanding yeah. you right, Cognitant, are you saying that uh, was the fact that Jesus born in the stable, was it a replacement for the fact that people used to have to sacrifice animals? Yeah, something like that. 
Yeah. Well, the, the, the reason why he was born in the stable is, is made very clear. There was no room in the end. And the innkeeper, um, there was no place to put him, so the place to put him was in the cow stall, basically. So there was no real theological reason behind that uh, in terms of... of, of but uh, So it was really because it was there was no um, boarding available for him within the inn. Uh, and that's why he was put in a, uh, he was born in a cow stall, quite frankly. Well, no, but I mean, you're, you're allegorizing scripture now. You're, you're taking scripture, you're giving meaning to scripture that is not there. The plain fact of the scriptures explain that the reason why he was put in a, a, a cow stall, basically, was because there was no room in the end. There's no, there's no biblical base for that. Now, if you want to spiritualize the text and say, you know, he's the Lamb of God who came to die for the sins of the whole world, and therefore he was born in the, in the stable, so there'd be no longer any animal sacrifice. I, I suppose you can stretch that, and it, it sounds pretty good in terms of, you know, um, an interpretation. But the literal interpretation that is given as to why he was born in the stable is simply because there was no room at the end. But there's nothing wrong if you want to spiritualize that to make it to mean that. I mean, I, I mean, but remember the literal. You, there's nothing wrong in trying to find a spiritual meaning in something that, that makes, um, you know, um, helps you to, to to value him more. But the literal fact is, there's a reason given why he was born there, and we can't go below the, beyond the literal interpretation. So uh, we stick with the book and not try to put our imaginative interpretation into the into that particular passage. Thank you for your question, Codrington, and thank you for listening. Pastor, why did Jesus have to come to this earth to sacrifice himself? Well, the, the Bible is very clear on this, that um, because of man's sin, um, man had to die, and uh, God provided his son to die in man's place, sacrifice himself. We also learn from the Old Testament that there's no remission of sins without the shedding of blood because the blood always in, had the life in it. So when the blood was shed, life was given. And so when Christ shed his blood, he was given his life uh, for man so that man would not have to suffer eternal damnation and suffer what is called the second death. So that's why Christ came to deal with the sin problem and he had to die an atoning death um, so that man uh, would be able to forgive, and he took man's place and now makes salvation available to man if man put his faith and trust in him. The name of the program is That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. For this program, you can also join us live on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, you can click on the Facebook Live video feed and you can comment your questions right there. You can call and be put live on the air, as Codrington did, and you can call one 462 7420 If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, send it to one 268 1454 We are talking tonight about the topic of yoga, but you can contact us with a question about any topic. Until we get another question, we will continue with the topic of yoga. Pastor, uh, limb number four, 
of the of yoga is breathing control, I believe. Right, right. What is number five? Number five has to do with sense withdrawal, and that has to do with withdrawing yourself from this world and the outer world and begin to focus on the inner world, which has to do with your your inner being, quite frankly. So you leave concentrating on the external world. You begin to look within uh, in, in your internal world, quite frankly, become familiar with your internal landscape, basically. So, you know, it's, it's like people talking about the outer self and the inner self, and that's what the, the focus is. And the whole idea is that you want to transcend the world of sense, so that your thoughts uh, become more focused on you internally, and that helps give you uh, cause you to have a higher s- uh, consciousness rather than just the external world. So that's number five. Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua, Brother Williams. Thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. Good night, good night, good night, Pastor Murphy. Hi, my brother. How are you doing? Doing well. What can we do for you tonight? Yes, uh, I'd like to, I like to read in Job chapter 1, verse 13 to 22. All right. Those verses say, And there was a day when the sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine, with their eldest brothers in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am alone, escaped alone to tell thee. Verse 16. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and he said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven, and hath burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, The Chaldeans came, made out of these three bands, and fell upon the camels, and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Verse 20, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. Yeah, Pastor. Yes, sir. Uh, Tell me, uh, did all what happened to Job happen to him in one day? Well, it happened. It happened in rapid, r- rapid succession. We're not told if it's one day, or one week. But the thing is that um, it it happened so rapidly. Is uh, you're just recording what happened. Um, I I can't answer that question in terms of. It just tell you that after one is said, the other one came. So it happened in very rapid succession. Because what I find in I, I find the servant who come every 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 instant that happened, he'd have a servant that have to come and tell him. Mm-hmm. That what happened is that the servant was speared what by whoever the enemy was, whoever. Yeah, well, I don't know exactly who, um, you know, I, someone reported to him. What I what st- struck me about the whole story, however, is the amount of control Satan has. For example, take the Sabians, that he can actually bring the Sabians 
Remember the Lord told uh, the devil, quite frankly, you know, do what you want to do right now. You know, you, you're going to put your, uh, let you have Job. The only thing you must not do is not, not kill him. And as a result of that, here you have satanic powers to able to bring the Sabians against Job. Think about that. And then the fire of God coming down from, from heaven, it doesn't mean that God sent the fire. That's the lightning that he's referring to. So even Satan had control of the elements to send lightning to actually destroy. Wow. And then the Chaldeans send the three hordes of Chaldeans to come and take away the camels. And not only that, a great wind comes and blow the house down, quite frankly. So it shows you the enormous power that Satan has, that God allows him to have, that not every storm is actually God causing the storm. Quite frankly, a storm was caused here by giving the devil permission to do it. But it gives you an idea of how much power Satan has when God gives him that authority to afflict uh, punishment upon people. That is what strikes me about here, that uh, he controls people and controls even, uh, you know, the lightning even could control the, the, um, the wind. That is staggering. And that's the, the thought. But the whole idea here is that he was totally devastated, stripped of everything that he owned. And Satan hoped that by taking away everything, Job would curse God. Because, you know, today, the almighty dollar is what seemed to rule most people. And touch people in their pocket, and you already touched them. And but, that's but, exactly what he did. Hello. But what really amazed me with Job uh-huh. is that he never, he never put no emphasis, no value on what he had. He only put value on what he had inside. Because yeah. after he lose everything, he never panic, he never curse, he just say, he just bow down and worship God and say, the Lord give up, the Lord yeah. take. But, negative I come, negative I go. So. But I think that is a result of Job's commitment and relationship with God. That was the primary thing for Job, his relationship with God. Nothing could fracture that relationship. Not even losing his family, not losing his business, not even losing his cattle, his, his wealth. You know, there are not very many people that could suffer what Job suffered and remain strong in the faith. They begin to panic. They begin to think, you know, God must be against me, whatever it is. And there are people who have left the faith when they've, you know, they, they could serve the Lord when everything is going well. They've got business, they've got car, they've got house, they've got everything. And then a tragedy comes and they lose all of that. Suddenly they abandon the Christian faith. Job is an example of a person who puts his faith and trust in God and that relationship with God was... Um, completely could not be fractured and no matter what happened no matter what he lost God was more important than his family he was more important than his, his cattle he was more important than his camels that was the primary relationship that he wanted to maintain his relationship with God so no matter what happened he maintained his faith and trust in the living God that is what true faith is all about Okay, Pastor, thanks for the explanation. Yes, God bless you, my brother. You too, and have a good night, and Pastor Nathan, take care. Thank you very much for the call. Thanks for calling. You're welcome. Bye. Pastor, we have a number of questions that have come in from WhatsApp since we took that call. A question from the Southern Caribbean. Good night. I have a non-yoga question. What does the ending of Revelation 6-6 mean? And I will read that and then finish the question. Revelation 6-6 says the following. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. The question is, um, this latter directive, if it is a directive, is the oil and the wine reserved for righteous, for the righteous? 
No. Again, read that again, please. Yeah, Revelation 6, 6 says, And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see that thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Okay. This uh, basically is the the word penny. There's a word denarius. A denarius was what was a day's wages, basically. So what is telling you that it's coming to a point where you're going to have extreme famine, but the ones that are going to be the ones to survive are the rich people. The oil and the wine is always reserved for the rich. So the su- the great suffering that is coming is going to be masses of humanity. Uh, that's going to happen. And the idea of a, a penny for a measure of wheat and three measures of uh, barley. Uh, barley is just telling you that a whole, it will take a whole day's wages just to get a handful of, bar- of, uh, of uh, wheat and three handfuls of um, barley. It's going to come that, that very desperate price uh, inflation. That's what you call real, real inflation. That You can't buy anything. Imagine spending a whole day's wages just to get a loaf of bread or to, to get a handful of barley. That's where it is warning that when this time of famine comes during this tribulation period, there is going to be dire need and uh, a lot of the commodities that we, the poor man would, would need. Uh, so the rich guy is going to be able to survive because he has the oil and the wine, quite frankly, but the poor people are going to be the ones that are going to suffer em- uh, enormously. Thank you for that question from Trinidad. Uh, Pastor, we have a question that has come from Europe. Hello, God bless you. Good evening. I have heard some Bible scholars saying that unclean spirits in the New Testament are not the same demonic being in the Old Testament where they were called Shadim, Hebrew spirits, or Hebrew for spirits or demons. One of the points they make is the usage of the word unclean in the Bible They claim the word unclean is related to sexual immorality or food. So by that, implying that unclean spirits in the New Testament are the spirits of Nephilim. Is there some truth to this, or is it just a theory based on wrong understanding of words? No, I think if you check the unclean spirits, um, they normally have to do with immorality. There's no doubt about that. But that doesn't mean that they're not the same spirits that you find in the in the Old Testament. Because, for example, when the sons of God goes into the 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 sons um, daughters, daughters of women, yeah. there's no question there what those are. Those are fallen angelic beings that had relations with human beings and created what is called the Nephilims. Uh, and that's why in all um, legends, you've got idea of great giants, and there's always some cross between humans and um, some supernatural beings. I mean, it runs through all legends, and Matthew, I mean, uh, Genesis chapter 6 explains that, quite frankly, and that's why we're told that certain angels are reserved in chains until the some are still free, but those particular angels that left their first estate, read Job, and uh, stepped out of the bond that God had set, uh, and got in, in, involved with uh, human beings, that is the explanation. If you go into Peter and Jude, you'll find that's exactly what happened. So there were unclean spirits back then as well, because these are fallen angelic beings that wanted to have sexual relations with, with women, quite frankly. And that's what an unclean spirit is about. Those who have studied uh, the occult know about succubus and incubus. And um, there are beings like that, uh, spirit beings that l- like to trouble women, 
and uh, there are uh, male uh, spirits that try to have relations with women. There's no doubt about that. People study uh, occult know that this actually happens. So there are still unclean spirits that desire to have relations with human beings. But that is not something new. Uh, go back to Genesis chapter 6. Now, some people interpret Genesis to mean the Sethites and the Canaanites. That, that's a myth. Because if you check the sons of God in the book of Genesis and go to the next place the sons of God is mentioned, the book of Job, where the sons of God in the book of Job clearly is the angels, uh, when the, the angels were, 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 um, were there when God created the, the earth and they, they rejoiced. So if you want to be consistent, that word son of God is used in the book of Genesis until you come to the book of Job. Uh, it, it refers to angels. And to twist it to mean the Sethites and the Canaanites makes absolutely no sense. And, and Jude and Peter especially explains that very clearly in, in, in those books that these were, these were now reserved in chains of darkness because they step under the boundary that God has set. And that is what has happened. So unclean spirits in the New Testament have to do with uh, spirits that are morally unclean that try to get people to do things that are morally unclean. But it's not a New Testament phenomenon. It actually find it in the Old Testament as well. Thank you for the individuals who sent in those questions. As we continue our topic of yoga, the pastor's talking about the eight limbs of yoga. We've discussed the first five. Anything else you want to mention about the fifth one before moving on? Uh, no, basically that when you come to this matter of withdrawing, the whole idea, now this is now preparing you to move away from the material world and start looking within yourself with truly meditation and stuff like that. So it's now you to explore the inner self. Remember that you're trying to release these this Kundalini force, you're trying to really get these chakra points where these are energy centers. So you know how to focus all your breathing on releasing those things and you focus on your inside now, you're not focused on outside. In other words, you're trying to get away from that the world outside really exists. You want to find the world within now. That, that's basically what's going on there. And the sixth one, uh, Nathan, is what they call concentration, where you focus on one single thing and it is sustained concentration on that one focal point. Sometimes you focus on your breathing alone. Sometimes you might focus on uh, a symbol. Sometimes you can focus even on a candle or uh, to give you a mantra that you keep repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating. And you come to the point where you have lost your consciousness because you keep repeating, 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 repeating. You keep repeating that, and you, you lose your consciousness, quite frankly. That's, so you concentrate on that one thing. Uh, it is believed that when you do that and you focus, you will begin to flow uh, to the point where you begin to start now to move out of yourself and merge with whatever this universal force is on about. But the whole idea is to get you out of your normal mind. If you can imagine uh, saying... Um, whatever word, dog, 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 until you, quite frankly, just out of it. Quite, that's what you're trying to get you to do, so you're no longer in control of your mind. So, but you must control that, concentrate on that one thing, that one object. Seems like all of these are building blocks for the process of meditation. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's exactly why he said to you that that he called it the the eight limbs. Mm -hmm. One, you must start here, and then you you gradually process. So when you do the posture and you do these exercises, it's not designed just to exercise your muscles. <laughs> the whole idea is to bring you to the point where you uh, withdraw yourself from the, uh, the material world, begin to look with inside, begin to concentrate, and the whole idea now is to get you to the point when you get that level of concentration. Now we want you to learn how to meditate, quite frankly. That's where meditation comes in. Uh, this is 
leads you to um, where you begin to, your personality now takes the back seat, quite frankly, and what is called your Atman, which is your soul or your spirit now takes over. So the idea now that you're, in other words, you're now releasing your spirit within you to now merge but you have to, you, you can't be thinking you're physical any longer, quite frankly. And that's where this meditation now gets you to the point where you're no longer thinking of yourself as an individual. Uh, they say that when you reach that level now, uh, your spirit begins to merge with this um, supreme spirit, uh, which is called the Hindu God, quite frankly. Pastor, we have Nathan on the air calling from Nevis. Thank you for calling, Nathan. And go ahead with your question, please. Yes, good evening. Good evening. Um, I have two passages of scripture in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Okay. All right, let me see what I can do to read those. Genesis 3, 1 to 7 say, Now the serpent was more subtle than the beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of the tree of the garden, of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God know, doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. And she took of the fruit, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Verse 7. And the eyes of them were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. Nathan, would you like me to read the second passage also? At the, yeah. Okay. Skipping down to verses 22 through 24 of the same chapter, it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he be put forth, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from hence he was taken. Verse 24. So he drove out the man and placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Yes, Nathan. Yeah. What, what do you need to know? No, in in the first part. Yeah. What he generally says is, God knows that if you eat of the tree, your eyes would be open. Yeah. Would you say that the serpent walk correct? Well. Her, her her trick, he offered her two things, right? And this is where people go after these two things. He offered her knowledge, and he offered her power. You will be wise like God, and you will be like God. 
So that's the two things that people, that the devil often offers that again and again, that you're going to have knowledge and you're going to have power. That's uh-huh. what, so he offered them that. It is true that what he told them, uh, there was truth to it. No question about that. Uh, but again, that was not God's way that they would acquire the knowledge and the wisdom that they would have got. There was a process where God was going to be mentoring them, as it were. And as they got uh, a closer relationship with God, God would give them more knowledge and more knowledge and more knowledge. But the devil wanted to circumvent that. And of course, he wanted them to disobey God. And the way to disobey God is to get them to take exactly what God you should not trouble. And the way to get you to trouble that is to offer you two things that you crave. You crave knowledge and you crave power. And the other thing, of course, he's slandering God because he's giving them the impression that God is keeping back something from them. He's a killjoy. Uh, he really doesn't want you to explore your full potential, as we would say today. So he is really holding you back. You need to get more freedom and liberty. You need autonomy. Now. You need independence. You don't need to depend upon God. All of those tricks he used are the same tricks he uses today on human humankind, quite frankly. And those are exactly the same methodology. He doesn't change his, his, um, his basic fundamental uh, proposition, but what he changes is his methodology, the approach. But the same things that he used to tempt Adam and Eve are the same very things he used to tempt us today. It's just he changes his methodology. So, so uh, he was saying to them a, a measure of truth, but it was truth that was distorted, designed to trap them to disobey God. That's what happened there. And in the second part, yes, God said the man has become like one of us. Yeah. One of us in the sense of knowing the difference between good and evil. And evil. Yeah. Right. Now remember that before the fall, man knew only good. Yes. But after the fall, uh, he knew he would know evil as well. The problem is this, knowing evil and being able to control evil is two different things. That's right? right. And that's where, um, you know, remember that the Bible says the, the, the Satan is subtle, he's smart, he's, he outwits us again and again and again. And our only safety is listening to God and listening to God's truth. If we just uh, would listen to God, we'll keep ourselves out of a lot of trouble. But the moment we turn away from God and listen to the lies of Satan, uh, we are no match for him. And he can always outwit us because he's far smarter than we are. Uh-huh. Okay. Does that Anything else you wanted? No, I think that is just about it. Okay, okay, sir. Thank you so much for calling. We appreciate that, Nathan. I miss hearing you, though. <laughs> Thanks for calling. I trust you have a good night, Nathan. There in Nevis, stay safe and continue to encourage others to tune in to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth. Maybe it's the first time you have ever tuned into the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Thank you for tuning in. And we are here for the next... 45 minutes or so to answer your questions live on the air. You can call and be put live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. If you don't want to speak live on the air, not a problem. We still have means that you can communicate with us. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. 
or you can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and ask your question right there on your device in the comment section, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy on air. Yeah, what I want to say here, Nathan, according to these um, practitioners of yoga, that when you go through this process of meditation absorption, they say that as you begin to concentrate on this one thing, when you um, this one object, uh, again and again, and your your atman or your soul uh, begins to take over. You said you reach at the point where you have no sense of of, of place, you have no sense of time, you don't even know what your name is any longer, and there's no sense of past or future. You're just living in one eternal presence. That's the level they say you come to. So when you reach that level now, you are at the point now where you have this higher consciousness, where you merge with whatever power or force is out there, quite frankly. Can you be in that state and be a Christian that is living the full Christian life? Well, I, I, I find it difficult for a believer uh, to want to meditate the way that these people want you to meditate, which you empty your mind, quite frankly, and just focus on one object. Biblical meditation is meditating on the attributes of God, the works of God, the truth of God. It's never to empty your mind. So that clearly is outside the realm of what a believer should be engaged in. And I keep telling people, when you get involved in this kind of meditation where you give up your mind and you lose consciousness, you are opening your mind and your soul to demonic powers and evil spirits to control you and to uh, inject ideas into your mind and cause you to do things that you would not normally do when you have your sensibilities and have the control of your, of your of your senses. It's a very dangerous uh, thing. This said, by the way, that when you reach this stage now, this is where you have. They say you have deep knowing. You have a level of understanding you never had before. You begin to gain insight. And they say that you have, this is where a lot of inspiration comes from. And you begin to be able to connect with, with powers and a sense of pr- 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 presence and a calmness is achieved. All of this bothers me and should bother any sane Christian uh, when you come to that, that kind of level of, uh, of hyper-consciousness, as they say, where you've just lo- lost it all and become united with this suppose a Hindu uh, impersonal God, quite frankly. A follow-up question from Trinidad in relation to Revelation 6.6. If the oil and the wine is for the wealthy, those with cash, what will happen to the remnants of the righteous in this tribulation time? For in Psalm 37, 25, and 26, it says that I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He is ever merciful and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. Well, it's obviously that um, the Lord will provide for his own. I mean, it doesn't mean because the world's uh, population is under divine judgment. It doesn't mean that God is not going to provide, for, especially for the saints uh, who are during that period, 144,000 Jews that will become the evangelists during that period of time, and also the Gentiles that are going to come out of that tribulation period, a great number that no man could number. So there is going to be intense suffering. There's going to be a lot of um, hardship and famine, etc., etc. But that doesn't mean God sent uh, a raven to feed Elijah when the, the river uh, Sherebel, quite uh, uh, I forgot the name, Sheriff, I think that was the title of the uh, the river, basically. But again, God provided. So it doesn't mean that the thing you've got to be aware about here, I think you're trying to link uh, oil and wine in the Old Testament being a blessing. 
that it means that God will preserve the oil and the wine for the believer. I think that's what the person is probably suggesting. And I think that is twisting what is being taught there, that during this period of time, to be extreme poverty and extreme want, a man has to spend his whole day's wages to get um, uh, barley and, uh, and um, wheat. But nonetheless, you still have the oil and the wine. The rich people are able to enjoy the goodies as they still are able to do today, even though the, the ordinary man may be suffering. Things are not going to change. Uh, you know, you're still going to have this disparity between the rich and the poor, even back in those days. So it's not talking about the oil and the wine being reserved for the saints. That's not what it's talking about there at all. Read the text, you'll see that that's not the reference. Pastor, what is the next limb of yoga? Well, the next one is what you call enlightenment, quite frankly. When you come to this meditation process, breathing process, etc., you come to enlightenment. As I mentioned to you, the enlightenment is when you come to a sense where you no longer have any sense of past or future. You have no sense that, uh, that you are in a physical body. Uh, all you have a sense is that you are basically like a mind, and you're merging with this super mind that's out there. That is when you got enlightenment. When you do that, by the way, later on you'll see that they'll tell you that you begin to hear voices, you begin to hear songs, you begin to hear even beings talking to you and instructing you, etc., etc. That's where the demonic comes in, quite frankly, because now you're being instructed. You, do, you don't have any control of your, your mind any longer. You've just surrendered. And now you're hearing all this teaching, all these voices, etc., etc., uh, that's the kind of experience that people want to go after. And I keep saying this, you know, why why would we go after fables and myths uh, of that nature when we got the rich Word of God that in- engages the mind? You could spend your entire life trying to study this book and never come to a, a, the complete understanding. That's why you, I mean, going to CLC or going to any bookstore and see every year thousands of books come off the, the, the printing press that has to do with expounding the Bible and explaining the Bible. It's a book that is unfathomable in its debt. Why don't we spend our time concentrating on that kind of truth rather than just surrender our minds to some forces that we have any control over and uh, it begins to affect us in the long term. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.24 on this Tuesday evening. Do we have Pastor, do we have one more limb or that was the no, That was it. The, the last one is, yeah. Uh-huh. Is enlightenment. Yeah. As we move on on our topic, yoga has several terms that are uncommon to the English ear. And could you give us kind of an overview of what some of these are and what they mean? Yeah, some of the terms that you need to become familiar with, uh, for example, you hear a yogi. A yogi is a, it's a person who practices yoga, quite frankly. And then you hear about karma uh, in that, which is the law of cause and effect, because all um, Hindu and all yoga practice, quite frankly, they believe in in, in uh, karma or you know whatever you however you live, you come back in another form because you have to pay a penalty for that. Karma has to do with the law of effect and cause. So however you live will determine the results of when you come back in, etc. So you've got to pay off your karma. Then there's something called moksha. Moksha has to do with your soul deliverance. The whole idea of we want to be delivered from this cycle of going to because of your karma you got to go through this cycle to come to a point where uh, you no longer have to go through this cycle of reincarnation when you do that that is called moksha that's deliverance from going through the cycle so you know which the final stage and then there's samsara uh, which is 
a cycle of rebirth. Same thing of reincarnation. That's the word that they use. Another term that you should become familiar when you're dealing with this is the word monistic. Uh, and it has to do with everything is one, quite frankly. And it means that everything that exists is made of one particular substance, uh, etc. Uh, we mentioned some time ago when we dealt with... Um, the other previous one we dealt with, uh, pan-entheist, uh, pan-entheism, which has to do that all is one, or all is God. Um, pantheism, sorry, all is God. Then the, the word nadis is another word you need to become familiar with. It has to do with the energy paths in your body. In other words, you remember we talked about the chakras, mm-hmm. and we talked about the Kundalini force? Well, these travel through energy paths in your body, through the chakras, come up uh, eventually. Uh, and then the word prana is another word you become familiar with. This is a life force that pervades the entire universe. So you're trying to release the prana when you're talking about release the Kundalini force. I mentioned chakra already, which has to do with the psychic energy centers in the body that is up in, in the, the spinal cord, quite frankly. And then we talk about the Kundalini, which is the force or energy, divine energy, that sits at the base of your spine, coiled up like a snake, about three and a half inches long, that you're trying to release that energy through your body. Um, another thing you might be familiar with is the word mudras, which had to do with your hand positions. Uh, in in uh, Then they the, the have chanting of, of mantra. A mantra is a word that you're given, and only you know that word. You're not supposed to share that word with anybody. And generally speaking, a mantra is normally the name of a Hindu god. So that's your own private word that when you're meditating, that's the word you keep repeating, 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 repeating. They also practice what's called visualization. And you remember that uh, the faith movement, when we studied the word of faith movement, the idea of visualizing, you're seeing something in your mind, and what you can see is realizing your life, you create reality. That is where we mentioned that it was part of the cult movement. This is where uh, Hindu is also involved in, in visualization. We mentioned meditation, and then there's something called the seven petal lotus flower, which represents the, the seven chakras. Uh, and uh, of course we mentioned breathing techniques and there's something called asanas asanas are yoga poses um, I think those are some of the general terms that you have to, to become familiar with if you're going to um, study yoga or get involved in yoga they also got a lot of other sophisticated names like for example they mentioned chakras I just mentioned where they're located, but they've got all Hindu names for those seven chakras or seven different foreign names you have to learn as well. And even the the um, eight limbs, there are special names for those eight limbs as well. I just use the English, quite frankly, but there's special Hebrew, uh, Hindu names for those. It seems as though that when they create this jargon, this unique language, it seems to have a level of sophistication that people think it's like a doctor being able to use a lot of highfalutin terms and he mesmerizes you by calling all these fancy terms that you're not familiar with so it gives an aura that he is highly intelligent highly smart same thing happened with yoga with all of these foreign names it sounds so so um obtuse quite frankly that you get the you know it's not like christianity with simple words it's far complex words so People uh, tend to move in that intellectual level because of the kind of jargon that is used within the, the Hindu and the and the yoga. Is it appropriate for a Christian to use, to refer to karma, to someone's got a bad attitude and then 
they trip and fall and say, "Oh, that was just karma." Is I, that I, appropriate? I, I don't. I don't. I look. I think we got to be very careful the language that we use. To be very honest with you, uh, the identity of karma with reincarnation, for example, uh, I know that it's been kind of. Um, how should I say? It's normalized, been w- normalized, and washed. But I still think we need to be very, very careful. Let's suppose that I can, I can understand that you don't mean that. But let's suppose an unsafe person who's coming out of Hindu background or coming out of yoga, whatever it is, and you're using that same term in the church that was so used when he was in, in, in Hinduism, you can create a problem for a believer coming out of that kind of a movement. I think we've got to use biblical terms. Uh, what you sow, you're going to reap. We don't need to use those kind of borrow those kind of terms for Hinduism and then of course we can uh, mislead people and make people think that we probably are mixing Christianity with the Hindu faith. A WhatsApp question that has come in. Nowadays we are using and understanding the word angel in the correct day. Excuse me, let me start over. Nowadays, are we using and understanding the word angel in the correct way? Since it means messenger, is it the name of the supernatural being or more like a job description? And they don't really have wings, do they? Well, you can't say they don't have wings because if you go into the, the seraphims in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, with two they cover their, for, uh, their feet, with two they cover their, their, their forehead, I mean their face, etc., etc. So clearly it depends on what angelic beings you're talking about. Angels, you've got the seraphims, you've got the cherubims, uh, and you've got ordinary uh, angels, quite frankly. But you can't say that uh, angels don't have wings because if you check, check uh, Isaiah chapter 6, you'll find that they have six pairs of wings. So it depends on what what angels are you talking about. Um, the, the, you know, the, the word angel um, also has the idea of, uh, is used for messenger as well. But that doesn't mean that we don't understand what angels are. Um, an angel is a messenger that God sends uh, to help and aid those who are heirs of eternal life, according to Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, but it's also used in the Bible and other places where it was actually sent for an ordinary human being that was sent with a message. It's one of those words that are borrowed and used, and you know, by, by reason of use, uh, it becomes part of the ordinary language. But it doesn't mean that we are confused. I'm not confused, and I hope you're not confused, because it's very, very clear in the Bible when that word is used, whether it's referring to a, an angel that, of God or when it's referring to a human messenger. You just have to look at the context in which that passage, is, which that word occurs. Thank you for the individual who sent in that question. Pastor, as we talk about these cults and these world religions, many of them focus so much energy into their publications and marketing themselves through their publications. Is that true with yoga? Not only true with yoga, it's true, as you know, with all the other different movements that have been. Uh, marketing is a key to success in terms of getting the Westerner to uh, engage in this kind of activity. Uh, they have something called the Yoga Journal. When it started in 1975 in the West, there only were 300 copies. Today, that journal now reaches 2 million people uh, uh, on a regular basis every, uh, every year. Um, it, they now claim, for example, as a result of this massive publication and outreach, that now 20 million Americans are currently practicing yoga. Uh, and that gives you an idea of how effective they have been in trying to, um, quite frankly, market it uh, in a way that is just seen as a, a form of exercise. So by repackaging it uh, for the West, it has really led to a great consumption 
of the uh, this this uh, yoga practice. Today, uh, for example, the industry, the yoga industry, is worth $3 billion a year. Think about that for just a moment, $3 billion a year. And that is a result of yoga classes, yoga on television, glossy yoga ads, yoga videos, yoga CDs, yoga mats, yoga wear, yoga clothing, yoga books, yoga DVDs. Uh, in other words, yoga has been glamorized and it's now very, very trendy. And it's all about health and hipness, uh, as people use. And celebrities, of course, are deeply involved in this movement. Uh, so, quite frankly, they've been very, very successful. And uh, they use advertising like every other form of business uh, to propagate and to uh, get the message out. Do you know, are there multiple types of yoga, various forms of yoga? And if so, what are some of these? There are about eight different forms of uh, yoga, quite frankly. Um, there is one called the Hatha Yoga. This is the one that is, we're going to talk about this one more extent because this is the one that has to do with exercises. This is the one that's caught on more in the West uh, than any other form of, uh, of yoga. Uh, then there's something called Tantric uh, Yoga. And this encourages you to seek enlightenment by some very unethical means in using sexual activity and using alcohol and drugs. That's called tantic yoga. There's something called raja yoga, which emphasizes the control of the mind to control the body. There's something called uh, janana yoga, which focuses on detachment, uh, moral pursuits, desire for spiritual liberation and intellect. There's another formula called the Kangalini Yoga, which focuses on the arousing this Kangalini energy power that you have located at the base of your spine. The whole idea is to get that to release. Then there's Karma Yoga, uh, which tries to you get liberation and um, salvation, quite frankly, through good works. Okay, that's why I said there's a moral morality involvement. In and then there's something called Bhakti Yoga where the practitioner seeks salvation through a path of devotion to some personal Hindu god. So those are seven different forms of yoga, but the one that has really uh, attracted the, the West is the Hatra yoga that is really uh, had to do a lot of body exercises. Do you think that Satan has the ability, maybe I shouldn't ask, do you think, do we know whether Satan has the ability to see the future in the sense that when he led different individuals to originate these Hindu, Hindu or yoga ideas, did he could see in 2021 the prevalence of these in the Western world? I don't know how far he could project. Um, there's no question that he is this, uh, the most enlightened being God ever created. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, and the, his capacity is, is certainly beyond anything that any human being could conceive. Now, whether he can project into the future, what I think uh, that he is aware of, I think he knew the Messiah is going to come. He can provide a way of salvation. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first proto-evangelion, the first promise that the seed of the womb would come that would bruise the serpent head. All through the Old Testament, there is the teaching that the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. 
the way to stop the Messiah coming was to destroy the nation Israel. That's why you find that on several attempts in the Old Testament, attempts are made to destroy the nation of Israel, but God uh, preserves that nation. And when the Messiah is finally born in the book of uh, Matthew and the Gospels, the attempt is made to destroy the child. So every attempt has been made to do that. And I think along with this whole thing, uh, it hasn't worked, it hasn't worked, it hasn't worked. The greatest thing to do is to create complete religious confusion uh, because he knows his time is short. He knows there's no hope for him, no redemption for him. And of course, uh, misery loves company. He wants everybody to be damned with him. He's an evil spirit and uh, he's a murderer and a liar from the beginning. So I am not surprised that he would spawn all of these different religious cults, etc., to create massive confusion to the point where people are going to say, well, I don't know what to believe. And I think that's where we are in the 21st century. You meet people every time telling you, I just don't know what to believe. They've got so many religions out there, so many different... What do you believe? And the only answer to that question is to go back to the Bible. That's the only answer. There's no other answer to that but to find... Uh, your ground and your root in the scripture to see what the Bible is teaching on this kind of matter. It seems like if someone isn't saying, I don't know what to believe, they're saying it doesn't matter what you believe. We all go into the same mountain. We're all coming up different paths. <laughs> yeah, well, that again, that is the pluralistic form of religion that has taken over the West. We have surrendered Christianity and in the process we are now in a position where uh, all religions are now viewed on an equal plane. And by the way, this has been facilitated by what we call democracy. And that's been, that's, democracy is good, but because we're living in democracy, we can't elevate, a government can't elevate one religion above another religion. So that has created the opportunity for pluralism to come in. And that in itself confuses people because you may have ministers of government who are Christians, but really because in government they can't prevent, say, the Mormons from coming in or the Jehovah's Witnesses from coming in. So that creates a dilemma uh, when it, people who are living, who are in charge of government, who are Christians, um, because the constitution of the government, um, you know, put certain regulations and, and, and give you certain freedoms. They have to acknowledge that. But I think that we are now living in the age where the surrender of Christianity by the West has led to the invasion of the Eastern uh, religions, and we are now in a state of massive confusion, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse unless we have a revival and return to the book. Uh, I don't really see how there's going to be any great significant improvement in either the moral or the spiritual life of the West. Pastor, why do you think yoga is so popular in the West? And as a follow-up question with that, with that would be, is yoga in any way dangerous or unsuitable for a Christian? Well, I think it is popular in the West because it is performed, uh, presented as a form of exercise. That by doing these different exercises, you will get different strength and your body will get toned, your body will benefit. And uh, if you do these poses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, again, I think that that is why. Uh, and, and then and also it's supposed to relax relax your mind. People who are going through depression is also supposed to help you if you're addicted to help you with your addiction. I mean, there are so many um, benefits that are being pushed forward for yoga without looking at the occult connection 
and the fact that you are releasing forces in your body that really are evil forces. I just think the, the marketing as a means of improving your health, improving your, your body toning, uh, improving even your, 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 your thinking, your, your relaxation, and getting rid of the, the, the stress and the depression. That's why people do it, quite frankly. Uh, they, they're not looking at the occult part of it whatsoever. They're looking at this release I'm going to get, etc. But my question to that, Nathan, is why, if the problem is that we're depressed or we're in a bad mood, why don't we just learn to meditate on God, meditate on the virtues of God, the, the art, the character of God, the works of God, uh, spend some time reflecting on that, to my mind, of greater benefit to do that than to be engaged in an activity that is very questionable and has occult roots. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua, 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. We have about 18 minutes left in this episode of That's Truth. We're talking about yoga, but if you have a question about any topic, you can contact us, and we will be glad to hear your question and to answer it from principles found in God's Word. You can call and be put live on the air, 1-268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to one 782 one four five four. Pastor, we have a question that has just come in. Uh, again, a follow up to Revelation six six. Uh, Pastor, I think you may have misinterpreted what I asked. I was in no way twisting the subject at hand, nor linking it to what was said. As a matter of fact, I am in the book of Revelation doing my daily devotions, and I am simply seeking clarity. I simply wanted to know if during the tribulation time, whether the righteous was going to be, whether the righteous were going to be forsaken. No, the righteous will never be forsaken, but that doesn't mean the righteous as well is not going to suffer with the uh, some of the consequences. I mean, even if you check the Old Testament, you'll find that, and check the New Testament, there are times when even the righteous was beaten, put in prison, but they would be protected. Uh, and they're on, under God's protection until they fulfill the purpose for which God has designed them during that tribulation period. So the righteous will never be forsaken by God. But the reality is that the righteous will also suffer some of the consequences during the tribulation period. It's like it's like uh, when a flood comes or a storm comes. Um, I mean, Christians suffer as well. Uh, it's, it's never the case. If in the case of the COVID, Christians still suffer because we're living on planet Earth. It doesn't mean that the believer is going to be exempted. But the righteous will never be forsaken, and the righteous will be protected. But that does not mean that they are going to enjoy the luxury during that period of time. It just simply means that they will they will go through some hardship, but God will protect them until He has fulfilled His purpose for which He has designed them. And then um, later on in Revelation, you'll come to where you're told that the the beast will have power over the saints and will kill the saints. That is part of God's divine plan as well. So, um, but th- that doesn't mean because He kills them, they're forsaken. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. It depends on how you perceive. Um, these matters. I'm sorry if I misinterpreted your what you were suggesting, um, and that was not my intention. I just wanted to make sure that um, the un- it was understood that the oil and the wine uh, is, is trying to show that even in the tribulation period, the rich will still be able to have their needs met. 
but the masses will suffer because the inflation will be so high that they have to pay a day's wages to get uh, wheat and uh, day's wages to get three levels of barley. Thank you for sending in that follow-up question. Pastor, you mentioned earlier this evening that the most common yoga... Uh, I I wanted to talk about the one you asked if it's dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Right. I wanted to... um, I want to quote those who are practitioners and those who are critics of this uh, and and let you see what they think about it. They think it's very dangerous. I want to quote from Sri uh, Parahit uh, Swami, who was a Hindu teacher. This is what he said. You see, people forget that Yama and Niyama form the foundation, and unless it is firmly laid, they should not practice postures and breathing exercises. In India, in Europe, I came across some 300 people who suffered permanently from wrong practice. Now, this is a practitioner of yoga who is saying that if you don't understand that you, before you lay the foundation of the yama, which had to do with the, remember I told about the restraints, and the other one had to do with the observing of personal things. He's saying if you try to do yoga and you come into the act, you're doing the breathing exercises and doing the meditation, and you bypass that, it can have some very serious permanent effects upon you. That's what he's saying, right? Uh, I want to quote also Hans Ulrich uh, Rika. Uh, he authored a book called The Yoga Light, and this is what he said. He said, yoga is not a trifling jest. If we consider that any misunderstanding in the practice of yoga can mean death or insanity. Now, this is a guy who practices yoga, and he's warning that yeah. if you do it the wrong way, that it could. Act, and this is later on. You see that it does it could cause madness as well. As well, I want to quote also Douglas Grotius, who is a, a Christian philosopher and apologist. This is what he says. He says all forms of yoga involved occult assumptions, even hatha yoga, which is often presented as a purely physical discipline. Even advocates of yoga uh, report the dangers of the energy, the Kengaluni force, may awaken. This may include insanity, physical burning, and sexual um, aberrations. So these are statements from people who have investigated and those who practice this thing. I want to also quote from, remember I mentioned a guy that did the, the occult ministering in Europe, a guy, Koch. Yeah. Right. I want to quote him. This is what he said. He said, the system of yoga stands behind magic, mysticism, and occultism. Yoga is totally opposed to what the Bible says. It is therefore dangerous for Christians to become susceptible to yoga. This is a man that spent 40 years dealing with occult practices, and he's warning Christians, you don't get involved in this thing because it's involved in the cult, involved in mysticism and magic, etc. So, I I mean, I just read those... those, um, those four. Uh, let me read, read something else he said. He said, the fourth stage of yoga is concerned with the mastery of magic and the cosmic forces. It involves the practice of spiritistic and magical phenomena. Yoga may indeed be harmless uh, to begin with in the early stages, but it ends dangerously. Yet, even the first stage of yoga, if not without uh, its danger, when, for example, the exercises involved are limited uh, with some short Buddhist prayers. So sometimes at yoga, you have these prayers that you have to mention as well. And then one last quotation from Wilson and, and Weldon. 
these are people who wrote uh, on this matter. He says, in the authoritative uh, yoga literature, there are invariable warnings about the danger of yoga, okay, practices without first gaining vigorous moral, mental, and sometimes physical prerequisites. In other words, they warn you that in the yoga literature itself, they go on to document the danger that happens. They talk about body disorders. You can even have madness, mental illness, and as that the Kongolini force could be linked to demonic activity. Wow. So I don't know uh, why any Christian, uh, hearing these practitioners and these people who have studied this thing exhaustively, especially Dr. Koch, uh, why would uh, people ignore this and get involved in this kind? So it's not an innocent thing. It has its dangers, and believers ought to be aware of it and stay away from it. A WhatsApp question that has come in from Antigua. Good evening. Have you ever wondered why man was offered salvation but the angels weren't? I wonder if it's the fact that they had more knowledge to things than us, so it's a greater consequence. For example, woe to a shepherd leading the sheep astray, according to the Bible. A pastor, etc., has a greater judgment than a regular Christian because he obviously had more wisdom with his position. What are your thoughts, Pastor? I think, quite frankly, that uh, the person might be onto something, even though we're in the realm of speculation because we're not given the reason. But there's no doubt that they had access direct to God's presence. Man never really had that in the sense that they had it. And don't remember, don't forget that they existed long before humankind. Hmm. So how long in eternity, in the past, did they know God? And how long did they serve God? And then to allow uh, a being like Satan to be able to hoodwink them. To, and remember, one-third of the angelic forces fell with Satan. So I would think that the the only explanation that would, would make sense to me would be the amount of knowledge and enlightenment they had as opposed to the to humankind. Uh, that would explain why they are debarred from salvation, but man has access to it. The other thing I would like to say, <clears throat> remember that... Uh, Angelic beings are spirit beings. Right. Man is not just just spirit being. He's a being that is both spirit and body. And I think that added element of having a human body uh, probably would uh, lessens who he is. He is not as refined as a spirit would be. And again, that means that he's not as responsible as a spirit being would be. So I think there might be some truth to what this person is suggesting, that the level of enlightenment this person, these beings would have had in knowing God from eternity and serving him from eternity. Uh, humankind, of course, did not have that kind of access to any length of time as the angels did. To develop on what you are saying about yoga and the dangers of it, you've mentioned earlier in the evening that Hatha, is the exercise aspect of yoga is the most common practice in the West. Do you want to give us some thoughts as to whether a Christian should practice that form of yoga? Well, I, I do not, from what my, my own research that I've seen here and uh, the one I've done the reading on, I, I think that this yoga period is something that believers should stay away from. Uh, I think that the benefits, if you're looking for physical benefits, uh, do the exercises that other people do, uh, you know, and uh, there's nothing wrong in somebody exercising in terms of the uh, postures, etc., etc. 
but to actually go into the breathing exercises to release the kundalini force to come into the point of meditation when you're focusing on one thing and losing your mind etc etc that should be off limits and I'm not too sure if we, we are really aware that this uh, Hindu uh, this yoga is part of the uh, Hinduism quite frankly why would we as Christians want to support that and uh, use our money to support something that has Hindu roots that doesn't make any sense to me quite frankly so I don't think it is wise for believers to be engaged in this kind of activity. You know, I'm, I'm, of course, it's making that statement, you create enemies because there are Christians who are already engaged in that, uh, in, in these kind of things. And uh, But I think I need to take a stand on these matters. I think that Christians should take a stand. And, and, and if you don't take the stand, uh, do some research, research yourself and um, see if what I'm saying is correct. If it's not correct, well, just totally ignore it. But if I am correct in what I'm saying and what these other people who are, have studied this thing to any great depth and who have been involved in it warn about the dangers of it, uh, you know, if it is true, then you can see you should desist from it and not get engaged in it. Do you think if a person, a Christian, is involved in yoga, that they will see the warning signs before they've gone too far? I, I, I don't know. Uh, depends if how discerning that person is a Christian. I mean, certainly if you are being instructed by uh, a yoga instructor and he's off telling you to uh, do certain exercises to release some energy force, which is called it like a snake. In it. Number one, I should alert you immediately. The idea of a snake, call it the back at the tip of your spine, three inches wrong, and you need to release this force through breathing exercises. I mean, that should be enough to run from that place, to be very honest with you. So I don't know why any Christian would be so dumb to remain and go through those kind of exercises. And then the idea of meditating, and say, on a mantra, you don't even know what the mantra means. And why is the mantra so important you can't tell somebody what your mantra is? Mm. Should that not raise suspicion in your mind? right? And if I need to concentrate, for example, on a candle, and I just focus on that for, you know, until I lose my consciousness, is that, should that not alert me that I, not, I no longer have control of my mind? So why do I need to not have control of my mind? Uh, what takes over my mind after I lose control of it? I mean, Christians ought to be discerning to know that. And then when you look at the Scriptures, emphasis on uh, always having your mind and control your mind, why would I want to go down that track? It simply doesn't make any sense to me. And I think that believers uh, are not as discerning as they should be. And uh, I think that this is really, really uh, a bad situation for believers. You keep referencing the Kingdolini force. I believe I'm saying that correctly. Do we know what that is? Is it a physical thing? Is it just a made-up idea? I want to I want to um, read what they actually say about this, um, and I, I just want to quote directly. When this uh, sleeping Kongolini um, force energy is awakened, uh, it said it raises its serpentine hood or head. Uh, the door of a, 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 a remember the word nadi which is these uh, pathways, is open. And uh, it says that it is open and the Kangalini ascends upward along these um, nadis, piercing through the seven chakras, which, uh, which I mentioned before. When it reaches the highest center, uh, this is in your head, uh, in the crown of the head, it unites with the Lord Shiva, the god of destruction, the third Hindu trinity of the trinity, 
whose consort Shakri, which is this this uh, energy we're talking about, uh, is identified with the Kangaluni force. So you're actually blending this energy with this Hindu god. That is the whole thing about the Kangalini force, right? And this is not Pastor Murphy saying this. This is actually from Hindu literature itself. Uh, this union brings, they said when this happens, with this Kangalini force uh, and this, uh, this god, uh, Shiva, that you unite with, it said when this happens, the union uh, brings ineffable joy, blissful beatitudes, it gives various mysterious experiences. Uh, um, it goes on to say the experiences in the gross body, the physical body. You get tremors. You get heat. You could get electrical shock. You get perspiration. Sometimes you even cry. You got thrills of joy. Your heart palpitates. He said you got involuntary suspension of your breath, and your eyeballs might even revolve. And when it comes to the more subtle part of your mind now, he says, you see visions of deities, uh, divine beings receiving instructions from them, hearing songs such like conch shells, bells, flutes, drums, thunder, uh, under the guidance of the guru, the one is leading you, uh, the yogi, that is the person initiated, should proceed with the spirit and surrender, allowing the power to take over the person's body. Now, this is, this is Hindu literature. I mean, anyone reading this should know that this is not something a Christian get engaged in. We're dealing with demonic, evil spirit powers, etc. Is there a power stronger than the demonic forces in the last 20 seconds? Well, Jesus said, and uh, the Bible says, Great is he that is in you, he is the world. And our Lord said that on the only way to beat the strong man, if a strong man, if one stronger than a strong man, uh, gets in and, and conquers him. And of course, Christ is that one who is stronger than the strong man. Put your faith and trust in Christ, and you can be delivered. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.